Welcome to Equivalence by Evelist, a mission-based initiative offering an unbiased source of info to people who aspire to make informed decisions and grow their career in companies who care about gender equity. I am Sophie Luray, and in this podcast, I want to open a dialogue about the notion of equivalence and how it looks like in everyday personal actions and corporate decisions. I invite change agents, men and women who are making it happen in their team, industry, and communities to talk about their journey, their practical tips, their moments of doubt and epiphanies. I hope you enjoy it and tell us what you want to hear about at hello at evelist.org. Welcome to Equivalence Podcasts. And today we're going to talk about turning a life purpose into a business and actually into a profitable one. So when you're obsessed by burning social issues, how do you tackle those pressing and hot topics and invite others to take part to the solution? How do you contribute to fighting for social justice while being an entrepreneur? Surely, numbers and data are very important when raising awareness about global challenges. But nothing beats storytelling to make their way to enter in our hearts and lead to change. The power of images on our psyche is by far the most effective tool for social justice campaigners to see a mental shift in the way people connect to the issue and mainly to bring them to action. Think about that picture of this man facing a tank in Tiananmen Square or more recently, the video of the tragic death of George Floyd. So today, I invited someone who is one of those rare people who found a way to bridge his life pursuit with a thriving business. Ravenel Chambers is the founder and CEO of Be Inspired, a multi-awarded TV video production agency that became one of the UK's founding B corporations and that focuses on telling stories for impact. And I'm particularly excited to speak with him today as he is releasing globally his latest feature documentary, A Road to Vrindavan. Welcome, Ravinon. Thank you, Sophie. Great to be here. It's great to have you. And I wanted to start this conversation by the beginning of your story, because it's quite unique. You started your journey as a monk. So can you tell us more about that? I don't think we have that many monks in our audience. So what were your <laughs> motivations? Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up in Ireland, in Dublin. And of course, I'm, I'm nearly 50 now. I was born in 1972, so way back before the internet. And as a teenager, actually, I wanted to be a stockbroker, which sort of gave me, I guess, my business interest, that side of things. But as a 20-year-old, yeah, I became a full-time Hare Krishna monk and spent seven years traveling around Ireland, England. I spent two years in East Africa. I spent a year in India, actually in Vrindavan, which is connected to the documentary, which we'll talk about later. I think it was from about the age of eight or nine, a burning question as to just those big questions, you know, where are we, why are we here, what's it all about? And it didn't go away. You know, those questions didn't go away. So throughout my teens, I studied a lot of different cultures and traditions and philosophies. And it was the hot topic of conversation amongst me and my friends. You know, maybe we were out late at night, lying down, looking at the stars and possibly a little uh, intoxicated, <laughs> you know, thinking about these things. And 
At 20 years old, I'd just come back from San Francisco where I'd spent the summer working after I finished my degree in psychology. And I went to the temple on a Sunday where they have temples all around the world and they have an open kind of Sunday feast. And um, I, met a, I met someone there, a senior monk who was also Irish, but had taken up this practice when he was 17, actually, in 1969. And the way that he explained sort of the ancient wisdom of the East of India was very practical and down to earth. And it wasn't just theoretical. It was, I could look out the window into the world and, and sort of see it in practice, if you like. Mm-hmm. And it, I was very attracted to him as a personality and he offered me the chance to travel with him. And that was kind of when the light bulb went on and I thought, that would be so much fun to do that. And I ended up doing it for seven years. It must have been fun. So he was your mentor. Yeah, he was like my mentor, my teacher, my guide. And I spent seven years essentially assisting him in, in his service of putting on festivals for the public, you know, cultural festivals. And unfortunately, uh, in 2001, around the same time when I think I naturally was feeling I would be better situated, you know, going out into the world and, and working and getting married and stuff. He also passed away from stomach cancer and, you know, quite quickly. So that was a difficult year for me, mm. 2001. Mm. A lot of change. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was about to ask you, so I, I guess it's, it's part of doors that are closing somehow and a moment where you realize something has to change. When did you mm. see that you could also impact the world and live the values and the, and the beliefs that you were having differently and mainly through business? Well, it took some time. I mean, I often describe when you've been a monk, uh, and back then, you know, there was, we didn't watch TV, we didn't listen to the radio, there was no internet, uh, we didn't read newspapers. Um, I was very happy doing that, but we were genuinely, you know, living in a, in a different sort of vibration, if you like. So coming back into the, the world of work and having to reorient it to all of that, I feel like it's like coming back into the Earth's atmosphere from outer space. You know, it was a big adjustment. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, when the space shuttle comes back into the Earth's atmosphere, there's a lot of friction and bumps and shaking around. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a difficult time initially. But I think, interestingly, in the, the Vedic culture, a lot of young men would go into what they call brahmachari life, which is kind of like student monks, if you like, until they're 25. And then most of them would naturally go into family life then for after 25. Yeah. I mean, I'd heard that when I was a young monk, but because I became a monk at 20 and I was young and idealistic and full of, you know, gung-ho, I just presumed and wanted to do it for my whole life without acknowledging that there's a reason that most of the student monks get married at 25, because for most people, it's the more natural thing to do. And there may be a very, very small percentage who are really cut out to do it for their whole life. So I guess my body clock naturally hit that point. And I realized that actually traveling and everything was wonderful, but I, I wanted to be more grounded and settled. And, and as you say, I wanted to, I guess, express my own talents and nature and ideas and realizations in a way that was more personal to me. So mm-hmm. initially, I mean, I was nearly 30 years old when I came out and I had no money, like not even a penny, because that wasn't what I'd been spending my time doing. But there was a sense of feeling maybe a bit behind other people in that regard, in the, in the material side of things. So my father suggested I get into property because I, you know, if I wanted to make some money. So I was sort of two sides to it. One more side was I worked in an estate agents to learn about, which is like a real tour, I guess, in America, mm-hmm. 
um, to learn about property. But I was earning a very small amount of money, £10,000 a year, but I was learning about it. And my parents gave me a, a small amount of money, which I invested in property. And it was very lucky that period of sort of five or six years, there was a great growth in the property market. So I managed to reinvest and reinvest and reinvest and, and sort of build up um, some properties, which, which, which was good. Mm. But then I felt the pulling back. So my life has been a little bit like the yo-yo. You know, I wanted to be a stockbroker. Then I became a monk. <laughs> then I got into property. <laughs> <laughs> then I got into property and then I felt, hang on, I feel like I got so much enjoyment from helping other people. So then I went back into sort of more social work, I guess, and I was running mentoring programs for young people that were uh, at risk of falling out of education. So I was kind of going to and fro like this. But the thing was, in 1995, when I was in East Africa as a monk, I had made a film about the work we were doing there. And I never thought of myself as a filmmaker. I just simply thought this is such a wonderful way that we could show people what we're mm. doing here. And so I, we were doing work with street children and education and festivals and all this. And I, so I, I filmed it and edited it myself in a very primitive way. And we had to post VHS tapes to people. I don't know if some of your listeners will remember VHS I tapes. I do. <laughs> yeah. And so it's a hard to believe, isn't it? You had, you posted someone a tape or you had to be physically with them in a room. Otherwise, there was no method for them to yeah. watch it. And then again, in 2003 in England, I, I made a film about the work that we're doing with young people. And again, it's the first time I heard the word sustainability because our funding was for three years um, and then it was going to end. And I, I realized that this method of, of trying to affect change was only so effective because you go into a community, you raise their hopes and yeah. they get, you know, they get support and then you leave. And then maybe a year or two later, somebody else gets some funding and they come back and do it. And it can be often even disheartening for the community because there's no sense of continuity or sustainability. So we made a film and it created some more funding, which enabled the work to continue. But I decided at that time to go back to university. I did a degree in business, like a master's and MBA. And again, I hit a point in my life where I think it's an interesting thing, and we'll talk about it when we get to the documentary. I say people, and I include myself in that. We're always looking for the panacea. Mm. We're always looking for the pill we can take or the, the perfect next step or the solution. If I just do an MBA, then my life will be fine. If I just become a monk, then my life will be fine. If I just become rich or if I just, you know, we're looking for these easy solutions. And so often when I'm speaking with young people, I like to share with them the moments where I really didn't have a clue what I was going to do next. because that will happen to all of us, you know, at times and, and it's okay, you know. And so I finished the MBA and I didn't really know what to do next. And I thought about it and I remembered the filmmaking. And one thing that was, I knew that I wanted to do was I knew at this stage that I wanted to do work that was about social impact, that was about creating a positive, some kind of positive change in the world. And so I put the filmmaking and that together. And that was when Be Inspired Films Boom. became born, if you like. Yeah. It's often in the middle that the story unfolds. If you allow for that, that middle of the story to happen to you, what you were saying about mm. having a, that silver bullet for everything, it's when you stop trying to find the silver bullet and you let, actually in the middle, you let things come together and all the, the elements of the puzzle just come together very naturally. And the seeds that you had planted long time back just started growing in you. So you've produced and directed many documentaries and, and movies for NGOs, for companies that really care about having an impact. Your company won 
multiple awards. I was mentioning in the introduction that your company was as well one of the founding UK uh, B Corp. Uh, you might want to explain a little bit to our audience what it means if they don't know. But today, we're going to focus on a very special release, a movie that is fully produced by your company, Road to Vrindavan, mm-hmm. which is currently being screened all over the world. And it's a personal story intertwined with some absolutely amazing, I won't tell too much, but amazing people, game changers, characters along the road that you meet. And there's a, as well a, a critical and very strong call to action. So tell us what led you to this day. So between the moment where it all comes together and you, you start being inspired till that day. And why you decided to produce it the way you did? Yeah, I mean, uh, when we started being inspired films, and I'm very happy to say, as you as you mentioned, like we've won many many awards. But the reason that I'm the most proud of them is because we were able to stick to the principles we set at the beginning, which were we would only tell stories about social impact, and and I'm I'm, I'm proud of of that in particular because it's so easy to chase the money mm. or you know whatever might be the the sort of flavor of the day so we're very very fortunate and i just very briefly on the b corp thing when i started social enterprise was the thing and i was very excited about that because naturally it was the coming together of kind of business and impact and there was a lot of hope for it and there are many wonderful social enterprises but I, what i saw in practice a lot of the time was that social enterprises were still leaning heavily on funding and so we're maybe not quite standing on their own two feet in a sustainable manner as they'd hoped to. And so when B Corp came along, which is, you know, it's a movement of, of businesses, for-profit businesses that are committed to acting as a force for good, I was really excited because I felt like their very success meant they had to be profitable, uh, but equally they had this you know, baked in, their, this sort of mission or, or bigger purpose baked in. And so very proud to be part of that movement. Mm-hmm. And so you have like Patagonia's, Body Shops, Divine Chocolate, even now in the UK, The Guardian, Jamie Oliver has just recently become, yeah. you know, so, so many businesses that are, that are trying to, to do good are, are part of that. But as you say, all of our work, and we're, we're fortunate that we've had so many great clients and then paying clients, and we were able to be successful and profitable too, but they were all client work. So they come to you with a brief and a project and, you know, you deliver on that and that's fantastic. But there's all, it's always essentially their story, which is wonderful. And I'd always hoped that we could tell bigger stories, you know, where we could lead on the angle or the approach. And they were sort of, if you like, as you say, an expression of my developing understanding of the world or of different social issues. And so I got a phone call in 2016. So this film has taken four years to complete, which has been a mammoth uh, <laughs> task. But that phone call was the start of it. And somebody uh, who became the producer of the film invited me on this road trip across India. So it was from Mumbai, which is on the West Coast, quite north, all the way down to the southern tip of India, which is called Kanyakumari. And they said, we're going to be driving that by ourselves, but we're going to be doing it on these three-wheel tuk-tuks. So they're like auto rickshaws. So anyone who's been in Thailand or India, whatever, will, will know what I oh, mean. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> not the safest vehicle to drive around, especially no. when you're not used to it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I thought at first, what an adventure. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved India. I'd been many times. So I jumped at the chance. And that began the quest, if you like. So he also explained, though, that the, there's a school in Vrindavan, which we'll go and visit afterwards. And we're doing this trip to raise awareness about the issue of girls' education and to raise some money for that school. 
And I thought, wow, well, I've not been in Vrindavan for 20 years because that's where I'd lived when I was a monk for one year. And I thought that would be great to go back. And although I knew quite a lot about the, the culture of India, having been, you know, sort of practicing it, if you like, mm -hmm. and my wife is Indian, I didn't know a lot about the issue of or why girls in particular had barriers getting into education and staying in education in India. So I thought instead of just researching it and hearing about it, you know, secondhand or thirdhand, let's ask people on the way what they really feel and try and understand it from um, the ground up, if you like. Mm -hmm. So we did that trip and we had a, a well, we, we managed to get through alive, which is good. The, um, when we were doing the training for the driving, the guy said, first of all, don't turn sharply or it'll roll. It's like an egg. <laughs> and then he also said, in India, we don't drive on the left-hand side of the road. We drive on what's left of the road. I love it. Um, I love it. Yeah. And uh, it's so true. I mean, you know, there's dogs, uh, monkeys, you've got cows, you've got tractors, you've got scooters, cars, huge trucks, and they're all on the road at the same time. Everyone's honking, and, um, everyone's yeah, honking at the same time. Everyone's on the wrong side of the road a lot of the time. And yeah, so quite exciting. So some of that's in the film, but then there's a sort of a twist which happens partway through, and it's all documented in the film, where I naturally you know received many encouragements about what we were trying to do but i, I also received a, a criticism and i think criticism is an interesting thing because at the time it, it can be very unpleasant mm. but actually you know it's always worth looking where in it is there something that you can either take away or you can go deeper to look at the issue more deeply so this particular criticism was why are you doing this as a man and I reached out to people around the world working in this space and I shared this with them. And I said, I have a feeling that this type of separatist thinking is part of the problem and it's not going to help us to address this issue in a sort of progressive manner. And so I went back again and we did a whole another trip. We looked at projects working with men and boys. We spoke to fathers, aunties, brothers, you know, and really tried to see this from an all-round perspective. There was a saying which one lady, Shika Ubroy, who uh, was India's number one professional tennis player, and now she's an impact entrepreneur, she blew my mind. So in New York, I met her and she said, you can empower someone into isolation. Now, I'll try and unpack that. So there's a sort of a euphoric idea in the development world or in the social investment world or in the SDG world that just educate girls. It's back to my point about looking for a panacea no, no. sometimes, you know, it's a very euphoric idea, just educate worlds and everything will just change by itself. And of course, a lot will change and, and, and in it, the impact, it's not to take away in any way from that whatsoever. It's to support that, that actually, she said, if you educate a girl in a rural place, for example, in India, and her ideas and her dreams and her aspirations for what she might do with her life open up much more than she thought they could have. But the environment around her and the community and the decision makers and the uncles and aunties and fathers and brothers, um, if they haven't changed their mindset, then in one respect, she's possibly worse off. And there may be a kickback against her progress, if you yeah. like, if they haven't adapted their mindsets. So I realized that actually not only is it important that men are involved, but it's essential, not because they're men or because they're so brilliant or because they're going to solve it or anything like that, but just because... You have to look at the whole picture and we're living in families and communities and you can't extract just one part of it from the rest of it. And so that became then, I guess, the main message of the film. But it's told, as you say, through so many 
amazing stories of incredible characters and their real-life lived experience. It's interesting what you're saying, uh, because this movie is about India, but we live everywhere in what is very much still a society that's led and designed by men, for men. Just one figure, uh, one number or whatever will really illustrate that. The World Bank releases every year a report on women and the law. So they look at gender equality purely, strictly under the law. And there's only six countries worldwide that have reached 100% gender equality. Six. <laughs> so the yeah. key to increase this number around the world, not just in countries that are developing in every part of the world, is to do so with men. It's not a woman issue. It's a human objective for progress. A hundred percent, yeah. How do you involve more men into that, in your opinion? It's difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult because I think we've all been conditioned, I guess, from such a young age in a certain way. These are stereotypes, but unfortunately, stereotypes are such because it means that not everybody is like the stereotype, but a disproportionate amount of people are like the stereotype for it to be a stereotype, you know, more of a stereotype. So it was hard for me also thinking about how can I position this film so that men will also want to watch it and not think that, oh, well, it's not for yeah. me, it's for women. So I tried by using the tagline, so educating girls is not women versus men, it's about our past versus our future, to try to, even in the tagline, address both genders to sort of see how this is, a collective thing, mm -hmm. if you like, rather than a, uh, a woman's thing. And, and I've been very pleased to say that we have had lots and lots and lots of men watching it. And also by understanding their, I suppose, speaking to them as a more full person. Mm -hmm. So as a man, you're not just a man, you're, you know, you're a father, you're a, you're a son, you're a brother, you're, you know, unfortunately, marketing and press and everything else tries to categorize all of us into a category yes. so that we can be marketed to so that we can you know so it kind of breaks us down and from being these full rounded humans who can be like diverse and eclectic and you know yeah. what i mean and so i guess yeah when we can sort of try and tap into whether it's men or women or whatever in that fuller way then it's just about trying to to help them see where their self-interest is yeah. in it and I think in the film, Jan Borgstad, who, who founded an organization called Humanity Foundation, says it brilliantly. He says that when men see that they have nothing to lose but everything to gain by having a more equal and fair society, then more men will pay attention and, and be interested. At, at, at the same time, though, I suppose there's a place for activism as well. One of my friends, Marian Pasha, she's wonderful. So we've had a 10-year partnership with her. She runs TEDx London, TED Talks mm -hmm. London. And she said, as an activist, you always feel the need to be kind of one end of the spectrum, kind of shouting about stuff and putting pressure on that end. But you also need campaigners, which are people who are trying to find the middle and trying to find the inclusive yeah. way of doing it. So I think from many, many different fronts, there are lots of different little levers, which together can kind of hopefully help us reach that tipping yeah. point. But it is, it is difficult. People don't like to talk about I've experienced this all the way through making the film. They don't like to talk about the idea that men might have to change their behavior in any way at all, actually. It's an uncomfortable thing. I think there's a, a, a way to approach it as well to include men is to show them what's in it for them. I'm thinking of, for example, an organization I came across 
10 years ago in India as well called Mango Tree. I don't know if you've, if you've heard about them. I'm not. It was actually set up by two men, a, a father and, and his son. And it's tackling the issue of dowry. Yes. It's actually tackling the issue of female infanticide through the issue yeah. of the dowry that obviously the Gordian nuts. <laughs> and the way yeah. they did it was very interesting because a lot of education had been done, awareness, and nothing worked, mm. right? Because it's a pragmatic issue for a family. They have to pay. It's expensive. It's a very difficult for, for exactly. them, yeah, of course. So what they did is they suggested some of the men in the villages to, instead of looking at the dowry, uh, investing in mango tree seeds for their daughter. Mm. And so every time they would have a daughter and they would pledge for the fact that they would not abort it or anything like that, this association would give mango tree seeds and they would plant it. Over years, what happened is those mango trees started generating really great revenue. And the girls who had always been seen as a burden, financial burden, now were actually revenue makers. It completely changed the dynamic, completely. That sounds amazing. There's a, there's a similar project that we filmed with, not for the documentary, but as a client called Perdada Perdaddy, which is a school that is for girls. And what they do is every year they invest some money into a fund for that girl that when she finishes schooling, then it'll be for her dowry. So again, it's just to take the pressure off those parents to allow her to then have her education. Yes. And I think it's the same that we found with the school in Vrindavan that we visited the Sandy Pani Muni School. As soon as the parents understood that the, potentially the daughter could, could earn, then she's also seen as an asset. Because it's the idea the son is the asset, the daughter is the liability because she has to be paid the dowry, but also she goes out of the family as well. And because they feel that, well, she, when she gets married, she won't work anyway, then even education is a waste of time. So there's no point yeah. in the first place, yeah. you know. There's an amazing organization we visited too called ECF, which is working with boys, and they're in the film, about helping them from a young age to change the mindset so that they're more gender equitable. So that's, that, I'm hopeful for that as well. So let's go back to the movie, because we, we could go on forever. I love it. What I love in yeah. this movie is the diversity of, actually, of perspectives and the fact that you invited, like we, we discussed, both men and women as well to tell their stories and to tell their solutions to increase gender inequality in their society. I personally have a particular fondness for uh, the, the group of high school girls that you, uh, you interviewed. They're, they're dragon slayers. They're amazing. <laughs> but introduce yeah. us to some of the characters, please. There's sort of two main characters that we follow throughout the film, and then there are lots of other characters we meet too. So the main two characters are Anurada and Rashmi, and they both grew up in Vrindavan, which is a very rural place, sort of four hours south of Delhi. It's quite poor, but there's also a lot of very traditional values there. And both of these girls were set to get married by their fathers at a very young age, which would have stopped their education completely. So Anurada was 13 and her father told her in 15 days, you're going to get married. You'll see in the film, I mean, she is one of the heroes of the film. She's an incredible personality and she was devastated you know she locked herself in her room before the marriage and i won't spoil it you know you can watch the film but she did something pretty drastic that uh, she was considering all sorts of things you know quite desperate but she did something quite drastic but quite clever 
that enabled her to not get married. And she went on and you'll see her incredible success in the film. And the other girl, Rashmi, she was 14. Her younger sister was 12 and she had two older sisters. And exactly to the point you made, we hear from her father, who's not a bad man, you know, mm. not at all. He's a man who's in his context, in his environment. He felt like what he was planning was quite normal, if you like. And, but he wanted to marry all the four daughters together at the same time so that he would save on money. And then his responsibility, if you like, would be, yeah. would be finished. But they were 14 and 12. And it's actually in India illegal to, although it happens so much, but for girls to get married below 18. So the school got involved, the police got involved. And he reversed his decision. The older two sisters got married and Rashmi was able to carry on. But we see the, the relationship between him and Rashmi and how it kind of carries on and the conditions that he puts on her education and progress. And, and so it's, it's interesting, as you say, to see it from different perspectives. The girls in Sandy Panimuni school that you referenced mm -hmm. as well, yeah, they're, they're amazing. Oh, they're, yeah. they're speaking brilliant English. They're so powerful and dynamic and ambitious. And, and hungry to learn hungry to yeah. get on, you know, and, and attack life. And contribute as well, you know. So one of them wanted to be a police officer so she could arrest people <laughs> that force girls to get married when they're young. You remember her, yes. Shirin? She was amazing. I think the conservatives push back. So I've released the film and we've had about 1,200 people watching in the last four days. And it's an hour and a half film. So that's, it's been great, the response. Yeah. And you have obviously the, the people who are enlivened, inspired, who are sharing opening up and sharing their stories from when they were young and their experiences about similar issues. You have people from Ireland and other countries, as you said, that are not in India, but who can equally see their story in the film in maybe in a different, slightly different context. But, you know, one lady who's a writer told me that her mother's generation often in Ireland had lives that were thwarted and not able to be fulfilled and even people of my friend's generation saying that they've even experienced jealousy or bitterness from their own mothers by the opportunities that they're yeah. able to have now. So they, she could see parallels with the aunties that were referenced mm -hmm. in the film. But I think I've also experienced the, I won't call them the wolves, but you know, you see people kind of paying attention to the film and following it and sort of coming in to comment, not because they're for the ideas, but because mm -hmm. they're against mm -hmm. them as well, um, which is probably a healthy sign. They say, if you've not got people against you, then you're not <laughs> doing something <laughs> big enough. But it's interesting just to see their perspectives, because I think they're very fearful of progress. They're very fearful mm -hmm. of change. And you could even say that maybe for, for good intentions, you know, they don't want society to fall apart. They feel that if there's a strong system that governs society, it kind of keeps it safe and whatever their perspective or their viewpoint. But instead of moving to looking at what parts of tradition or culture are useful or what was the original intent and disregarding or letting go of the aspects that are oppressing or hurting people, they don't even appear to be able to go that far. They dig in and they, and they want to revert back to how it was. And they also presume that you're trying to dismantle or abandon all tradition or culture, which mm -hmm. is not the case. You know what I mean? It, and that's what I meant earlier about this binary thinking. People think, well, if you're not for this, mm -hmm. you must be for mm -hmm. this. And you're like, no. <laughs> and if you don't want to do this, then everything will go to hell. And you're like, no, it won't. You have to, we have to trust in our collective intelligence and intention and well-meaning and and try to navigate but it's very tricky and difficult to navigate that tension between tradition and progress but it must be done especially if in the name of tradition 
people are being Absolutely. hurt. You know, you said it. It's fear. When you break the fear, everything crumbles down right away. And and sometimes you can see. I invited Viva Bakshi recently uh, onto the podcast, and she was talking about how she approached, uh, for example, the patriarchs in uh, in some of the villages that were obviously very worried about losing their authority and control. And once the fear was gone, once they understood it wouldn't be necessarily the case, some of them became actually advocate. Yeah, I listened to that. That was a great podcast. It's yeah, a very wonderful. interesting uh, thing is that your biggest enemy, if you can break the fear, can become your advocate. So I'm glad you have a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of hate somehow, <laughs> because you're provoking the conversation at least. Yeah, and it's interesting because I don't think that in many ways you're kind of coming at things with the same intention. It's mm. just that I feel it's very hard for us to break away from that binary thinking. Like it has to be black, and if it's not it, black, it, it must is, be white. It is. Yeah, you know and what I mean? you were saying earlier on something that resonates in me as well is is this thing of wanting to put people in the box, and even nowadays in the context of a lot of conversation about diversity diversity put people in a box it doesn't necessarily bring them together and and the risk yes. of this conversation is actually that it's to say i identify myself as this therefore you cannot enter in my world and vice versa yeah and i have to say that's exactly you know i felt like that at first because i am a very i suppose as a, maybe because i've had a very diverse life you know i've lived in so many different places i've followed different ideas and so on so for me I don't feel any one strong identity box to put myself in. I feel like I'm across mm -hmm. many, many boxes. And so I do understand that, that people feel safety sometimes by being in a particular box. I did a podcast interview on my podcast, Evolving Door, with a guy called Bobby Friction, who's a British Asian kind of DJ and TV presenter. And I asked him the same thing. They have the British Asian Network radio service in the UK. I said, do you think it would be better if, it, if we could find a time where it's integrated into the mainstream? Mm -hmm. And he said, I think you need both. Because it's just like, say, you have a local Indian shop where they sell all the vegetables and the special spices, and they really are expert in everything. He said, if Tesco or Marks and Spencer's or wherever Aldi starts to sell some of those spices and everything, that's great. But it doesn't mean that those local Indian shops mm. should close down. So we should have both, you know. So I think that it's true. It's, it's great to have, you know, the core of, you know, these cultural identities. But also we need to, I think, open up and celebrate and allow and invite spaces where we can comfortably talk across yeah. those separatisms yeah, as well. And interact and contribute to one another. And learn, learn, yeah, learn from each other. Yeah. So I'd like to, to understand, because you mentioned a, a little bit, but to go a little bit deeper into the strategy to release the movie, I think you, you have a, a very unique approach as well. And maybe you want to tell us a little bit about the financing. I mean, you know, the nitty gritty details, because it's beautiful, but how do you make this happen? <laughs> and also, what, what are you expecting and inviting people to do when they're watching that movie? The wonderful thing is, is that, like I said earlier, about there's moments where you don't have mm -hmm. a clue. So throughout those four years, there were many moments where we were trying to figure it out. And it's wonderful now. You know, I feel much better equipped to approach this in the future. But a lot of it was learned on the way, if you like. So in the beginning, I just knew I had enthusiasm to tell this story. And so I basically financed the whole first part myself. And 
that was wonderful. But as I realized it was going to become a much bigger project and be much more significant, I started to reach out to, you know, funders and also to wealthy people that I felt might be interested in mm -hmm. this area and obviously had many no's <laughs> along the way. And I was very fortunate. One gentleman, very wealthy, successful business member, also someone who's very committed to social investment and had a particular interest in women's education. It was quite weird because I became friends with him and I was telling him about the film and everything and about some other people I was talking to uh, that I was asking them to help, but I never actually asked him, which was kind of weird because I'm normally a very driven kind of go-getter kind of person, but somehow or other, maybe there's a lesson in this, I didn't ask him. I just told mm. him about it. And then eventually, at some point, he invited me into his office and he said, how are you getting on with the fundraising? And I said, oh, I still haven't managed to do it. And he said, okay, I'll give you half of it. And it, I, mean, it, I mean, I say it was a significant amount of money. I mean, it was, but it wasn't in the scheme of things. I mean, it's in terms of films, like a film like this would probably cost way north of you know, half a million mm -hmm. pounds to make if it was on a full budget or even maybe more than that. I was asking for 150,000 pounds. So, you know, really doing things by a lot of people helping out yeah. as well, you know. And he said, I'll give you half and I'd like the business that I'm associated to to give you the other half. They then weren't able to do that. So I had half. I then did some crowdfunding, which helped me. And I got a few other people to, to also give me some smaller amounts. And I was stuck in that situation where we were nearing the end of the film and I still had a sizable chunk that I didn't have. And I, I went back to this uh, gentleman and I said, I never wanted to be in this situation to have to come back to you and ask you for the rest of the money, but that's where I am. And he gave me the wow. rest of the money. And it was wonderful, yeah, because in, in, for many reasons. It was wonderful because it enabled us to, to make this film and, and gift it, if you like, to the world and, like, and, and see so many of the wonderful impact it's having on, on so many people. But it also, it felt great to have somebody trust yeah. you and believe in you to bring that to life. And so I'm incredibly grateful to him. Then we, we were then thinking, okay, so we've made the film. What's our strategy? So we finished it just before the lockdown last year, about March, 2020. Perfect timing. Exactly. It couldn't have come at a better time, right? <laughs> but actually we did a screening, an initial screening in November, 2019, and it was a bit longer, the film. And we got feedback and we adapted it, changed it, tweaked it. And that was really useful to be able to do that, actually. And then uh, in March 2020, we did a screening in London and then the lockdown hit. And our strategy was to put it into film festivals and to hopefully get selected and then, you know, speak to distributors and kind of see what would happen that route. The film festival circuit was turned topsy-turvy last year. Some pivoted to online, but it was really, really, really difficult. And around November last year, I decided, you know what, we're going to just release this film ourselves and we're going to put it out. We're going to do screenings with all the different networks of people that we know. And then I came across this idea of what they call partnership screenings. So you basically tap into different existing networks, you know, through whether it's networks, organizations, companies that either somehow work in a field related to the film or they just have an audience they think will care about the film. And as we sort of started to put the wheels in motion for doing that, we started to get loads of film festival selections as well. So we got seven international film festival selections now, which has been great. You know, it raises our profile. It enables people to see the film in, in different parts of the world that we're not really there. It gives us those laurels, which, of course, is nice for our poster. It's just a bit of kudos. 
But we set about doing these partnership screenings and we've done about six or seven now and we plan to do about a hundred across this year. We have a obviously a lot of good sort of social capital mm-hmm. with a lot of our clients and people like that. But we do want to then see it on a bigger platform, whether that's a broadcaster or a streaming platform like Netflix, because then it's really when, you know, a huge yes. audience can see it. But just a little bit of insight, like you said, into what I would like to see from the film. It has never been, and it's still not about recouping the money or about, you know, making a financial profit. If any of that comes, that'll just be a bonus and we can put it into making more films. But the primary thing is kind of micro and macro. The micro I always felt was when people watch this film, I wanted to touch their hearts. I want them to take something away personal Mm -hmm. from it. Like how can they relate to or think about the issues raised in the film in their own life? I was always hopeful that people wouldn't think, especially in the West, oh, like externalize it and go, oh, this is some terrible issue in some third world place, but it doesn't have any relevance in the place that I live. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, we're we're seeing more and more that it's just a different mm-hmm. rapper. This, the issues are very powerfully present in many parts. And that's good even to acknowledge it. But when you make it somehow related to your own life, whether it's your own family, your own community, maybe your workplace, then there's a greater chance of not only you addressing the issue, but actually receiving the gift of growth or you know introspection yes. and, and change. And I think that in a way... By me being in the film and following my journey and how it's affected me and my family and so on, I guess I'm hoping to invite the viewer to do the same journey themselves, to think about maybe how does this relate to my life. So that's on a micro level. But on a macro level, the international development, the international aid, the social investment world, the education sector, there's a lot of money, billions if not, maybe, maybe more than that, going into educating girls. And that should not stop. I mean, that's fantastic. But I would just love that um, part of that budget or new funding can also go to working with the communities and the men and the boys to help them adapt the mindset that has for such a long time held girls back so that the education of the girls hand in hand with that can be a a less bumpy ride, let's just say, a more integrated and sustainable approach. I just wanted to say as well that This is what I observed anyway from making the film, that education is not just about academics or about earning more money or about propagating a system that in the West we've already seen has its own issues as well. There's many benefits from academic education and from increased income and so on. But we could equally see, we have to, if we want to be honest, and we want to look at the tensions between traditional progress in the Eastern ideas, then we have to also look at the Western ideas and see that, you know, where has this kind of chasing towards money and capitalistic culture, it has many benefits, but what are also the areas of that that need to be thought about? So I'm not suggesting that education is just for money and for joining the rat race and for, you know, all of the the craziness that that brings. But what I do think is, equally, if maybe not more important for these girls, is that the sense of confidence in their own voice, the sense of investing in themselves, the sense of learning awareness of the world and having the confidence to say no 
when something doesn't feel right for them. The confidence to take part in conversations in the family, in the community, and to contribute to society in whatever so many ways that they can that maybe otherwise they just would not have been invited to do. Because then they may choose to work or they may choose not to work. They may choose to get married or yeah. they may choose to get married later or not to get married. But the point is, is that they're making choices rather than everything being decided for them. And even in the Western world, like my wife decided to stay home after having our two boys because she wanted to look after them when they were growing up. And that's a choice. And you hear debates and discussions by many w women in the West about some groups of women think that perhaps maybe you're only only yeah. a housewife, <laughs> that you're not fulfilling your potential and that it's somehow not good enough. Or other women feel pressured that they have to go out and work and maybe they don't want to and, and so on and so forth. So it's again about choice rather than the society deciding yeah. what you should be or what's better. I, I would or add not. to that that education is not is not a it's like healthcare. It's not something that, that you need to just destine to one thing, which is, okay, we educate the girls so they can have good jobs and build careers. Education has a ripple effect, and it's been researched and seen time and time again on the, the welfare yeah. families, on the Including exactly. health, exactly. like you say. On the governance of a country, the more women are educated, the better the governance of a country is. On the economic chain, the value chain. So it's not just, oh, we have mm. to educate girls so they can go to work. Education is just a mm. basic, I, <laughs> basic human need, and it's yeah. good for everyone. It's like a key. It unlocks exactly. so many other benefits. And it's interesting, too, a lot of people try to reduce it down that it's just an economic yep. thing, even like that girls are held back just purely because they don't have enough money to say, send mm -hmm. the girl or the boy to educate. But actually it is definitely a component, but we also spoke to families and girls from very wealthy families who experienced mm -hmm. similar restrictions, mm -hmm. if you like. So it's, it's, it's somehow or other become deeply baked into the, fabric, the culture. Yeah. 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 The fabric of definitely. Of I just wanted to comment on one thing that you mentioned earlier on because I found I find that very interesting and it, it, to me it's a it's really a, a tip for our audience as well you said you know when you were talking about your financing and and the way you had figured how you would broadcast and and promote the movie and how it ended up there's a thing you mentioned yeah. you started so you started the movie before completing the financing you started the broadcasting as well yes and that's the entrepreneur in you obviously but that's a, a huge tip for anyone that starts something <laughs> is don't wait yes until all the stars are aligned because actually the stars usually align as you go it's very true and it's actually it sort of ties back to that point about like wanting the pill to take yeah. or wanting to find the panacea it's kind of like wanting someone to come and save me or wanting someone to come and tell me how to do it. Or, you know what I mean? We all have that in us. We say, oh, someone will sort of find me and they'll make me a star or whatever, you know. But actually, no, it's ultimately we have to take responsibility for our own lives as much as we, <laughs> as much as we hate to yeah. a lot of the time. But actually, when we do, like you say, when we do, that's when, whether you call it God, the universe, the you know, yeah. conspires to try and support you because you're already, you've already set the attention and you're already taking exactly. the steps. 
Well, Ravenel, it was fantastic, and I think we could talk another hour. <laughs> so maybe we, we'll, <laughs> we'll do another another conversation when you release a new movie. I would like to know, yeah. and I, I would like you to tell everyone how we mm. can get in touch with you, screen the movie. I think we are going to do a, a screening at some point as well, and we will come back to that. But in the yeah. meantime, how can we get in touch? How can mm. we follow? How can we support? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you to all the listeners for, for listening so far. The way you can watch the film is go to roadtovrindavan.com. So road to Vrindavan. So Vrindavan is V-R-I-N-D-A-V-A-N, roadtovrindavan.com. And there's a lot of screenings there. There's, there. If you're listening to this when it's just first come out, you may be able to catch the UK premiere, which can be watched anywhere in the world. But if not, there'll be various screenings throughout this year on the screenings tab and you just click through and you register you can watch it for free but we encourage if you have the capacity to make a donation which goes towards educating the girls and we have a, a very special welcome message just before the film from me and also from malala who shares a few words about the film and we're on all the social media platforms at road to vrindavan so instagram twitter and facebook and if you want to connect with me personally you can just get in touch with me through the website or through Be Inspired Films through the contact form. And as you mentioned, please do watch the film yourself. But if you have a community or a network or you'd like to discuss maybe doing a partnership screening, then that would be wonderful too. We're, we're looking to try and reach as many people as we can. Thank you. Have a, a wonderful week and an amazing follow-up of those screenings. Wish you the best. Thank you so much, Sophie. You enjoyed this conversation, but you had a lot of questions still to ask the guest? Well, now it's possible with Will Digital Talks. Join us on willforum.com, W-I-L-forum.com. Every month, we will have great conversation with people that are changing the game in arts, in literature, in politics, in business, and in science, followed by sessions where you get to ask them any questions you want for 30 minutes straight. Also, you get to meet with other participants and have speed networking sessions with them to see if you form a friendship or mentorship or maybe sometimes do business. So join us every month, willforum.com, W-I-L forum.com.